Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. Hey, come on in. We're glad you're here with the Three Martini Lunch. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. He's Jim Garrity, of course, of National Review and author of Between Two Scorpions. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis to talk about today, and it's not our official good martini, Jim, but uh, watching the Bears win on a national primetime game. Yes, it was against the Washington Redskins. You nailed it. Uh, the Bears fans dominated the uh, the stands and the cheering, and the Bears defense dominated the first half. And so I have bragging rights over everyone in Washington until the next time we play. So I'm going to bring you Yeah, look, today. i got to hand it to you, Greg. Uh, congratulations to you. Great game in Chicago last night. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't Chicago because the, the crowd was full of guys in Bears jerseys and – People cheering when the Bears scored and all that stuff. Like it wasn't in Washington, right? <laughs> the reaction, or Redskins, the only team with a home field disadvantage. The reaction when they gave uh, Gabriel the third touchdown when they initially said he was out of bounds. <laughs> the audience was uh, almost like the Redskins had scored. It was so uh, pro Bears. It was very very funny. But uh, I gotta give the Redskins a little bit of credit. They're not the worst team that was involved uh, in the game last night. I guess I haven't paid a lot of attention to the Monday Night Football announcing crew in a while. <laughs> Wow. Not good. Not good. I appreciated Booger McFarland's outstanding analysis on a couple of points. First, you should block Khalil Mack. And secondly, uh, when the Redskins intercepted Mitchell Trubisky down at the goal line, he said, when you're running a fade pattern, you want to throw it so your guy gets it, not the defender. I, I didn't know that before last night, Jim, so that's really important. You know, with a name like Booger, you figured he'd be an absolute Mensa candidate. Um, no, great irony. Okay, I know people are itching for us to get into the politics stuff, but this is this is what's on our minds, people. Um, Booger McFarland, when he's in studio, it's he's a very likable personality, yes. jovial. There's just a particular rhythm to calling the game between the play-by-play guy. Monday Night Football traditionally has had two color commentators, whether it's Howard Cosell or the infamous Dennis Miller or, or things like that. It's just not working, ESPN guys. I, I, I kind of miss Tarico. I kind of miss the old guys. Maybe mix it up a little until you get a, a right tie. At least, at least Booker McFarland doesn't have that dune buggy on the sideline. Going back and forth. <laughs> or what was it? Was it a cable car or something or go-kart? There was something they had him zooming around and running over other players. Yeah, zip kind of, line, I think it was. Yeah, zip line. That's, that's how I would describe it. Okay, you've been patient long enough. Let's get to our actual good martini now. And apparently, everyone was not very convinced after President Trump and Secretary of State Pompeo said that Iran was actually responsible for the bombing of the Saudi oil facilities back a couple of weeks ago. But now there's some other people on board, so we'll see if the attitude actually changes. Uh, the leaders of France, Germany, and the UK, so Macron, Merkel, and Boris Johnson, involved in this statement, quote, we condemn in the strongest terms the attacks on oil facilities in Saudi territory on September 14th, 2019, and we reaffirm in this context our full solidarity with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and its population. They go on to say it is clear to us that Iran bears responsibility for this attack. There is no other plausible explanation. So, Jim, it's not often we're saying, hey, international community, quote unquote, is the good martini. But uh, even these people, most of whom don't like Trump very much, can see the facts here. Yeah. I mean, there's there's two points here. First is there was never that much uh, of a terribly plausible or credible alternative explanation. I know the Houthis were taken in, in Yemen were taking credit for it. Um, most people said, look, the Houthis don't have the capabilities for this. 
Uh, allegedly, there were reports the attacks were coming from the northeast, which would be across the Persian Gulf, not from the south where the Houthis are. Uh, just posted this in the corner a few moments ago. Uh, Congressman Ro Khanna of California, a Democrat, said Pompeo's statement immediately blaming Iran for the drone attack in Saudi oil fields is reminiscent of the Bush administration jumping to conclusions about weapons of mass destruction. The Houthis are not Iran. We can't let another deception lead to war in the Middle East. Well, here we are. Yep, yep. We think you know, it's Iran too. There's no other, no other, no other plausible explanation. Perhaps a little bit of room here to gripe that here it is. It is close to eight days afterwards. And now the Euro- Europeans are saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we agree with that. You could imagine a scenario where there is some other attack on a you know, Saudi target or some other target in the Persian Gulf or U.S. forces in the region or something like that using drone attacks. By the way, I think everyone could generally agree this is the future of, of warfare here in which we probably would need a, a clearer assessment of, of who is responsible for the attack. Uh, I'm sure... The Europeans probably worked as, as hard as they could. They're probably intelligence communities probably working together on this. But the question is now, all right, now that the, we know that they've done this, and this is an unprovoked attack, thankfully it didn't kill anybody, but obviously knocked off half of Saudi Arabia's oil production. What are the Western powers willing to do about it? And the short answer appears to be issue a sternly worded letter and in, you know invite Iran to the negotiating table again. Now, Boris Johnson, who's going to be a pretty sharp cookie sometimes, has been basically talking up the idea that only Trump can negotiate a good deal with Iran. And I don't know if he means this in the only Nixon could go to China context, that if Trump came back and said, this is a good deal, then even the most, uh, the biggest skeptics would have to say, okay. Um, Or whether he sees this as an option for kind of like the way the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement replaced NAFTA, um, that, that, you know, Trump could look at a, a, you know, similar version of the Iran deal. You make a few cosmetic changes and then uh, you know, the Trump administration would sign on and, you know, presto changeo, you have a bipartisan uh, U.S. coalition in support of a new Iran deal. I don't know what's going to go out from here, uh, but I think it is a good sign that at least the Europeans are now no longer clinging to the, you know, the, the never all that plausible explanation that, oh, maybe the Houthis by themselves suddenly developed really advanced drone technology and managed to get super lucky and just happened to knock off half of Saudi's oil production. <laughs> um, you know, we don't serve anybody well when we cling to implausible scenarios. And it's good to see a consensus amongst Western countries on this. So I assume the issue is just going to be ignored now that there's uh, <laughs> people besides the United States saying that this is the case. Because when Trump says it or Pompeo says it, like you said, we've even got our own legislators saying uh, that's jumping to conclusion. Now that other people who they like more are agreeing with our assessment, I just assume we're not going to hear about it again. Ro Khanna, call your office. <laughs> Let's talk about other things Ro Khanna and some of his Democratic colleagues are talking about. Jim, we're talking about impeachment again, and for about the fifth or sixth different reason, I think, since President Trump took office. But this time, they're for real serious. Uh, we've got more people now saying that they're open to it. There's a letter written by, what is it, about half a dozen or more uh, House Democrats in today's Washington Post saying, It's not a decision they reach lightly, but these latest allegations regarding the whistleblower and Trump and possibly a quid pro quo with Ukraine, but uh, even Trump's admitting putting some pressure on supposedly um, to have Ukraine investigate Joe Biden and his son. Now it's time for impeachment. And you've got some other members uh, one at a time coming out saying it's time for impeachment. The ones that already wanted impeachment, of course, are 
pushing it again for this reason. We're seeing reports that Nancy Pelosi is quietly polling her caucus to see if it's time to move. She had resisted moving forward, even though Jerry Nadler badly wanted to because she knew she didn't have the votes to get it done. Now that seems to be changing a little bit. You've also got some theories out there that Trump actually wants to get impeached because then he can paint the Democrats as being completely unhinged and it will somehow help his re-election bid. So, Jim, does everybody want impeachment now? What's going on here? In a very strange way, yeah. You, you may have these <laughs> the stars aligning in which everybody's convinced that is actually in their long-term interest. Um, wrote about this at length in today's jolt. First, Greg, I'm just going to go out on a limb myself. If the president of the United States says this assistance to your military that has been passed by a broad bipartisan con- consensus in Congress, I am going to withhold this unless you investigate one of my political rivals, then yeah, that's impeachable. That is not within the president's authority. That is an abuse of his power. Um, you don't get to say, we're making this all condition on, on condition of uh, uh, you helping me against some of my political enemies. That's, you know, crossing a line. Now, having said that, I think this is going to be bad for the country. I think it is bad, you know, bad for Trump to do that. An impeachment fight is probably going to take about six months. Um, at least that's how long it took back in 1998 and 1999. Um, if you start it now, you're probably finishing sometime in February or March, right around those. So probably will have seen the Iowa caucuses and New Hampshire primaries and some of the big important uh, contests of the Democratic, Democratic primary at that point. I think you'd probably get very uh, party line votes. I think the closer you get to Election Day, the more Republicans in Congress, even if they don't like what Trump did, will have a very comfortable saying, look, this is something for the American people to decide. We're only a few months away from November. If the American people believe this is unacceptable and we're, you know unworthy of the presidency, they'll vote him out. If they're not that worried about it, they'll vote him in. Uh, not exactly a profile in courage, but I think a lot of, you know, let the people decide is always a, you know, easy way for a lawmaker to punt. In the meantime, you've got the, Dem- you know, here's where the Democrats may have a really clear cut abuse of power on the part of Trump. But they've been screaming for impeachment in some cases since January 20th, 2017. Um, I don't know if this packs the same punch as it would have if we had not just gone through the Mueller report, if we had not just gone through Stormy Daniels, if we'd not just gone through the emoluments clause. And, you know, when uh, Adam Schiff comes out and says this, this is a that we've crossed the Rubicon or Brendan Buck was going through and doing a good example of these. The so dam is, is it, breaking. The dam, has bur- the dam has burst today, Greg. Is that what it is? The dam is breaking or the floodgates are open. Um, floodgates are okay, Because the other updates I need is I need to know if the horse has left the barn and whether the horse has a cart in front of it or not. I believe those. I believe the cart, the horse, and the barn, which is apparently burning, are all kind of in, in all interrelated somehow. Look, we've been hearing from these guys for a really long time that Trump deserves impeachment. If Democrats, if you want to do it, then do it. Stop telling us what you're going to do and do it and be ready to accept the political consequences. This could blow up in their faces or it might not. The American people might look at this and say, you know what? This is not something the president of the United States should be doing. This is an abuse of power. Let's say no. Or they might say, you know what? I'm really troubled by this on the part of what the president's doing, but I don't like impeachment. I don't want this lawmakers trying to undo a decision that was made in 2016. I think you can very fairly argue there are people who've been basically throwing a tantrum ever since election night 2016. You know, this is going to turn into a big, nasty, ugly, partisan fight. It's a rare moment, but it's a situation where I'm kind of relating to the, uh, or I feel a certain amount of sympathy towards the progressive Democrats because they voted for a Democratic House. Was it Rashida Tlaib who said, we're going to impeach the blank, blank, blankety blank? Yes. They haven't done it. (laughs) 
you know, but the word today is that House, Greg, is that House Democrats are moving towards a vote Wednesday on a resolution condemning Trump's Ukraine call, but aren't calling for his impeachment yet. To paraphrase Emperor Palpatine, witness the power of this armed and fully operational resolution of condemnation. <laughs> because if that doesn't get Trump quaking in his boots, I don't know what will. There's so many things. You mentioned the Democrats. You got to say it about the never Trumpers, too. You see these tweets, uh, you know, the news breaks and George Conway's out there going, all right, this is it. You just got to do it. And Bill Crystal's out there. He's got a group called Republicans for the Rule of Law. And he says, I think we're seeing momentum now because we released this ad over the weekend. (laughs) No, you would be for it if he you know, took an extra scoop of ice cream because that was a scandal once, too. But this one might actually have some teeth to it. But don't pat yourself on the back too hard. You might uh, rupture your elbow uh, ligament or something. Yeah, we've heard. I went back and I did this. and I still can't get my head around this, Greg. Uh, I believe it was Jim Clyburn who said that Trump and his family are the greatest threat to democracy that he's ever seen in his lifetime. (laughs) Jim Clyburn is not a young man. (laughs) He's been around for the Soviet Union. He's been around for Al-Qaeda and ISIS and all these other, you know, uh, groups that want to kill Americans. Uh, You know, Iran's still around, you know, uh, know, all all those kind of groups. So there's that. Pelosi said Trump wants to make America white again. Constitution. We've heard all this stuff. And they all voted against impeachment. Now, if you really think the president is the greatest threat to democracy in your lifetime, why are you not voting for impeachment? It's not bad enough. Your bar is really high then. Same thing. He wants to make America white again, but that's not enough to get you to want to impeach him. I mean, the really fascinating thing is the theory here that if there's a single House Democrat who has said, I do not support impeachment because I don't believe the president has done anything worthy of impeachment. I want to find it. I I haven't seen it. I'm curious about it. Keep my eyes open. Um, but my suspicion is the only reason every single House and Senate Democrat doesn't support impeachment is because they think it'll improve Trump's reelection odds. Yes. Now, it's a political at, calculation on both sides. Sure. And at some point that at some point, that's cowardice. Right. At, at some point, you're like, look, I'm afraid of the political consequences, so I'm not going to do it, even though I think crime has been here committed. I mean, look, say what you want to say about the Republicans in 98 and 99. They got their butts handed to them in the, in the 1998 midterm elections. They were totally convinced it was going to be this huge winner, and they lost. And you know what they did? They went through with it anyway, knowing it was doomed in the Senate because they thought they were standing up for the rule of law and doing the right thing. Yes. But, you know, too much to ask of House Democrats or a lot of Democrats these days. Apparently so. Yeah. There's one Democrat who doesn't want to do this, at least, and that's Tulsi Gabbard. She says she's staying consistent in believing that impeachment would be terribly divisive for the country. And she said it would intensify hyperpartisanship. And she just thinks it's better to beat Trump at the polls. So, Jim, she's not getting to the point where she says he hasn't done anything impeachable, but she's uh, she's taking the uh, a hypothetical Republican line that you just outlined there a moment ago. Just let the voters decide here. Yeah. Um, by the way, that is, I believe, as you're speaking, Greg, because I always pay attention to everything you're saying, <laughs> that that is debate qualifying Tulsi Gabbard. Ah. Debate. There's a new poll out that puts her at that all-important threshold of 2%. <laughs> she did it. Way to go. Uh, which, by the way, I think would take us to 12 candidates. I think that probably puts them at two nights. I think, you know, 12 candidates on one stage would be really difficult. You know what? Two nights of of six candidates each, you might actually get a pretty decent debate. And, you know, maybe they wouldn't have to go three hours then. So so kudos for Tulsi Gabbard on that one. She knows how to stand out in this field. Yes, yes, I don't don't think everybody's going to be following her down that path. I I think the really big question there, Greg, is, you know, at what point does Trump replace Pence with Gabbard? (laughs) 
She's younger. She gets the young kids exciting. You know, Betts is kind of old. She surfs. <laughs> She's fabulous. Jim, even as weird as this political climate is right now, that uh, that is something I have a very hard time picturing. But you just you just never know anymore. But curious to see who draws the uh, the other slots on the stage if there is a, a two night uh, event with this next debate, since there will be twelve because Steyer's in there too now, in addition to the ten that were there in the last debate. If you're one of the front runners and you get on the same stage as Tulsi Gabbard, better prepare. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You want to talk about everybody wanting to be on the other night. It's like a shark in the water. <laughs> well, Elizabeth Warren, let's just go over your resume. <laughs> and with only six on stage, Biden's going to have to talk a lot more. So that could get interesting, too. What could go wrong, Greg? What, what could, could go, go wrong? Speaking of the presidential race, let's go to our crazy martini now and move to Bernie Sanders. Bernie seems to be a distinct third, but kind of a distant third in some of the recent polls with Biden and Elizabeth Warren separating themselves. And that's not good for Bernie because Elizabeth Warren is gobbling up some of his uh, far left progressive. You might even want to say socialist vote. And Bernie Sanders is not taking that lying down. Elizabeth Warren, I'll see your wealth tax, and I'm going to raise you big time. Here's Stuart Varney on the Fox Business Network explaining what Bernie wants to do with the wealth tax. Bernie Sanders, he's just unveiled a new wealth tax proposal. It's much more aggressive than Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax plan. Bernie would have a 1% tax on net worth above $32 million, 2% between $50 million and $250 million, and the tax goes all the way up to 8% on a net worth above $10 billion. That is an annual tax levy. Annual tax levy, Jim. That's insane. But as uh, the folks over at Hyder point out, Bernie's got a lot of trillions and billions to pay for, given his uh, outrageously ambitious progressive agenda of Medicare for all and ending student debt and getting rid of school buses or at least replacing them. He's got a very, very big agenda here, and he's got to pay for it somehow. This still wouldn't do it, but uh, what do you make of Bernie trying to tack even farther left? You know, Greg, this is the guy who said, you don't necessarily need a choice of 23 underarm spray deodorants or of 18 different pairs of sneakers when children are hungry in this country. And I think he means it. I think he genuinely believes it. He, he looks at CVS or, or whatever store you're in or, or the Nike store or uh, Foot Locker, you know, and he sees a lot of stuff that people don't need. But if he had the power to take mo- like half that stuff away, maybe two thirds, maybe three quarters, right? Maybe in the Bernie Sanders ideal world, you go into the store and there are two or three different kinds of sneakers. And if you don't like it, tough. You get two or three different kinds of spray deodorants. And if you don't like it, anything more than that, sorry, we took that away in order to feed hungry children. Of course, he's going to say we should be taking gobs and gobs of people's wealth. Of course, he's going to say we should take away people's yachts. Of course, he should take, he's think we should take away people's trust funds and uh, uh, the Rolls Royces, the Rolexes, you know, any, anything that strikes him as ostentatious consumption should be taken away other than um, having three houses, Greg. That's, that's <laughs> one thing that's okay. But someone observed, I retweeted it today, I can't remember who it was, but it's basically like, you know, you look at Bernie Sanders in 2015, the millionaires and the billionaires are ruining this country. 2016, the millionaires and the billionaires are ruining this country. Uh, 2017, the millionaires and billionaires, his book finally sells enough, Bernie Sanders is now a millionaire. Billionaires should not exist. <laughs> all of a sudden, millionaires aren't the problem anymore. All of a sudden, millionaires, oh no, you're cool, you're fine, it's all right. Yeah. Hey, I'm in the club now, oh, I get past that little velvet rope, hey, this place is pretty nice, yeah. Yeah, you millionaires are good guys. The real problem is those billionaires. A week ago, I wrote Inside the Mind of the Biden Voter. 
and it was just basically like you know listening to folks I know who are Democrats, listening to when they do uh, talk to people at his rallies, you know, all that kind of stuff. What what goes through the the mind of somebody who supports this candidate? How do they see the world? This is not an endorsement. This is not a um, Jim is going to vote for Biden. Jim's going to vote for for Warren or Jim. You know, I just trying to see how these people see the world. Sometimes I can find common ground. Sometimes there's just beliefs that are just too far, and I just think are a little bit of self delusion. Yesterday with Warren, you know, a, a big fundamental argument is fairness, right? That, that all of these groups basically look at American society, and they see examples of things that aren't fair. Now, the irony is a lot of conservatives look at the society, see a lot of things that aren't fair. You know what strikes them as not being fair? The acceptance rates for legacy students, athletes, uh, children of staff, and uh, affirmative action picks at Harvard University, which, by the way, adds up to like 40. Um, because, by the way, none of those folks would make it on their own qualifications if they didn't have all that kind of stuff. Um, you can find examples of unfairness all across American society. The question is, which one really gets your ire? Which one really makes you mad and which one really makes you upset? We're talking about Hunter Biden in a lot of these podcasts. You know, the fact that people keep inviting Hunter Biden to join their uh, to join their businesses. Uh, and this Chinese tycoon just gave him a 2.8 carat uh, diamond just, be, just for being friends. Greg, you and I have been friends <laughs> and we've been doing this podcast for years. I've never given you a, a pebble. <laughs> Hunter Biden, people just walk up to you and give you diamonds just because they just because they like you so much. There's no bribery there because after all, as he said, oh, my dad was out of office. It couldn't be a bribe. My point with all this is that, you know, Sanders believes there's unfairness in this world. And correct. Congratulations. You get a gold star for noticing that. He very much believes that if we just gave more money to the government, these problems would get solved. Now, we declared war on poverty back in the 60s. We have no shortage of federal programs designed to help the homeless. We have the Children's Health Insurance Program. There's not a single child in this country who should not be seeing a doc, who is unable to see a doctor, right? The state has said, we will pay for the medical care of children if you are below a certain level. And I want to say it's like anywhere from two to four times the poverty level, right? We are a big, generous country, right? If there are problems that persist, it's not a matter of we're miserly or we're mean or, or there's something, you know, we're not a giving enough country. By the way, young Bernie Sanders, back when he was Burlington mayor, was invited to some United Way event and he began by saying, I do not believe in charity. <laughs> right? You know, this is what's at heart here. Um, Bernie Sanders has no faith in the ability of charities to do good. At least he never did. Maybe he's got a little bit now. But he has absolute faith in the government's ability to solve these problems. The rest of us are much more skeptical because we've been paying attention since 1960s about how the government approaches these problems. And, of course, it uh, promotes class envy and, and class division and that sort of thing. And it makes me wonder, you know, I, I you see people who just uh, got an inheritance and they're arrogant. And they don't do anything productive in society. That's one way to feel annoyed. But if you see a guy like Jeff Bezos, for example, I mean, I disagree with what he's doing with his money. I don't like it. But I'm not angry or, or jealous of Jeff Bezos because he's got tens of billions of dollars. The guy worked really hard. He created something that never existed before. Good for him. He should be rich. Look, Jeff Bezos has put, you know, puts 100 percent of himself into everything he does. And for that, he's going to keep 50 percent of what he's got. <laughs> That's right. That was not a joke about taxation, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's a divorce joke. But, uh, <laughs> Jim, I don't think Bernie Sanders is going to get elected president. But if he does, will you hold my place in the bread line each morning? I'd be really appreciate it. <laughs> yes, because you'll be so late from watching the Bears <laughs> in their home game in Washington. <laughs> to bring us full circle. <laughs> exactly. 
All right, Jim. We'll do it tomorrow. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us. Join us here again tomorrow for the next Three Martini Lunch.